I don't know about you guys, but when I do a project at home, and it seems like, you know, the longer you've been in a home and the more you um, kind of get confident in various things, the more things you will attempt. And so I'm really thankful that I live so close to Stones and Home Depot. I can't imagine if I lived like 30 minutes away because I end up making multiple trips over to one of these places to grab stuff that I inevitably, you know, I, I, I find out I need later on in the project. Anybody can relate to that? You know what I'm talking about? And, uh, and more time is killed running back and forth than anything else. And, and one other thing that irritates me and it shows you that I, I really lack a, a very good organizational system for my tools and various things because it never fails that I'll run and I'll get something, uh, you know, that I think I need in this project or I need in this project. And then uh, when I'm finished with the project, I'll throw it in my toolbox, and then later on I'll discover, like, I already had, you know, some of these, you know, like, uh, whether it's, you know, putty, how many jars of this stuff do you have hard in your garage, like, that's, that you can't use anymore, you forget to put it inside, or uh, a certain wrench or a certain, uh, you know, size of a, of, a, of a tool you need. And it never fails that we, we are all guilty of this, we do this, unless you're one of those ultra-organized type people, all right? And, and so there's sort of a redundancy to it. And I think that really applies well to our text in Jude today because he gives some super practical wisdom for us as Christians. Like he's saying, here's some things, some tools that you need for the Christian life. And, you know, many of us have been believers most of our lives. We have the word in front of us. We know these things that are godly wisdom that we have to implement. Yet so many times it's very much like the Home Depot and Stones, right? We run back and we think we got this and then we just put it on the shelf and we forget we have it, right? And, and we just, then we go on in life and then we kind of like, oh man, you know, I, I forgot that that needed to be a discipline in my life, that needed to be a staple in my life, that needed to be something I was actively doing. And I know that as meet with guys and fight clubs and stuff, we're, we're guilty of this. We're guilty of not doing the things that we know that we should do. And so I'm going to encourage us today because what you're going to hear in this passage of Jude, much of this, if you've been around church, you know these things. Please don't go and set it on the shelf when you get home, all right? Don't walk out and be like, oh, that's what I need. You put it somewhere and you're like, I'll remember that, and then you forget you have it. Don't do that. Let's take the things that God gives us today and let's use those to be who God wants us to be. So we're back in Jude and we're in verses 17 through 21. 17 through 21. So Jude writes, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause division, divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith, and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Let's pray and we'll look at this text. Father God, we thank you for your spirit that lives within us. We thank you for your word that you've given to us, God. We thank you for the gift of prayer that we have, that we can go to you, God. We thank you that you are sovereign and Lord over all. And God, we admit, I admit that 
many days, many hours, we live um, just uh, oblivious to these truths. God, we get off doing our own things and forget uh, the truth that you've given us to live by. God, I pray that you'll help us to remember that we have an enemy, the devil, and he's active, and he's working to not only destroy us individually, but more importantly, to destroy us corporately as a body, God, and as a church. And we know that we live in a time where the church and its values and your truths are under attack. God, I pray that today that we'll learn how to better equip ourselves and use the tools that you've given us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So we remind you as we're wrapping near the end of this, we had this week and one more week, that Jude's purpose in this little letter where it's, it was twofold. He wants to expose these false teachers. Really important we remember, remember this, that these false teachers were right in the congregation, right in the community. And they had infiltrated into this community. And in fact, a lot of people didn't recognize exactly who these people were uh, because they were so well integrated and they could talk the talk, but we knew eventually they, they could not walk the walk. And then he's wanting to encourage the Christians to stand firm in the faith and to fight for the truth. So that's kind of the passage, the part we're in now. He's going to transition to the Christian standing firm in the faith and fighting for the truth. So look at verse 17. He says, but you must remember. And this is the second time that Jude's told us to remember something. He reminded us of things back in verse 5. He wants us to know these things. You have these tools. You have these things. Don't forget these things. These things are critical in the, your life, your Christian life. You need to remember these things. And so he says, uh, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus told his disciples that in the future, something would happen within the church, that this would happen, and he's making a prediction. He's telling them, Jesus told the apostles these things. What is that prediction? That they should expect false teachers who are going to come into their midst, spread lies, slightly they're going to taint the truth in a way that maybe those who are not very mature in their faith won't recognize it as lies and heresies. Many will be deceived by it. And so it's important for us as believers to continue to grow. And that's what he's telling us. I want to build you up in the faith because you need to be able to recognize these things when they come. In a minute, we're going to see some startling statistics that a lot of Christians are not heeding this and they're falling for these things. And it's easy for us to disconnect because we think, well, I know the, 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 the tenets of the faith. I know the things that are important in the faith. Yet, why are so many Christians and so many churches going this direction? So Jesus told us this back in Matthew 7. He said, beware of these false prophets who come in to your midst in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravishing wolves. So these are dangerous people. And he says, you'll recognize them by their fruit. You're going to recognize them by their behaviors, not necessarily the things they say. And so look what Jude calls these wolves. Look at the terms that he uses for these. He says, they, the apostles, so they took these, this message from Jesus, the apostles did. They passed it on to the churches, to others. And he said, they, the apostles, said to you that in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. So Jude refers to these people as scoffers. This is a person who mocks and ridicules or scorns the belief of another. So this is someone who is mock, uses mockery. They make fun of other people, oftentimes behind their back possibly. And we'll talk more about that in a second. This term scoffer is only used one other place in the New Testament. And it's used by Peter, who possibly was the apostle who passes down to others. In chapter 3, verse 3 and 4, uh, Peter writes, Knowing 
this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. See a pattern. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things have been continuing as they were from the beginning. So Peter says some of the same things, then Jude repeats some of these exact same things. And so these scoffers, these people within the midst, these are not believers, okay? They're not believers. This is heresy outside of the core orthodox beliefs of the church. And that's important that we understand, again, that they may have been saying the right things, but their lifestyle did not point toward the lordship of Christ. And again, I'm not talking about someone who sins or on occasion that you slip up, you have bursts of anger, you have bursts of lust, you have bursts of envy. This is going to happen to every believer. No matter how long you've been a believer, you're going to have battles with the flesh, with sin. These are people who, verse 19 says, they're devoid of the Spirit. These are not believers. These are people who may think they're believers, right? They may think because they named Jesus they're believers, but their agenda, their goal, as we've said all along, is to bring in this false belief that Christians can just live however they want to live. God's gracious. He's just going to be okay with it. He's going to look the other way. Just do what you want to do. But as Romans 8, 9, Paul says, if anyone that does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. And so Jude says that these people are devoid of the Spirit. They do not have the Spirit of God. And so they come into the church community. They're in the church, and they think they're smarter than everyone else. They laugh, they mock, they sneer at others because of their lifestyle, because of the way they live their life. Because that's what Jude says. Look at the verse. He says they're following their un, uh, ungodly passions. So these people are in the church. They're scoffers, and they aren't following the word received by G, from Jesus to the apostles, to the church, but they're following whatever they want to do, their ungodly passions. So in particular, they mock, they laugh, they sneer, and they make light of God's holiness and God's moral perfection. All right, does that sound like our culture, right? They mock, laugh, sneer, and make light of God's holiness and his moral perfection. They ridicule truth and morality. Their behaviors and teachers show that they think God's righteous character, his holiness, is a joke. They have no reverence for God's purity. They pursue their own selfish and sensual desires, as Judas talked about, and they're even proud of their sin, and they boast in their sin, and they find their identity in their sin. And so Judas already pointed this out back in verse 7, where he said, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires. And so this is very much our culture today, a confused culture who thinks that they can just take God's word and accept Jesus and then just live however they want to live. And now, if you're in the grace bubble here, you may be thinking, well, do people like that really exist, honestly? Like, I know we've been talking a lot about this, but does this, does this really true? Well, I pulled some the latest statistics, if you'll put that up there on the screen. This is amazing right here, right? I won't go through all these, but leave that up there in time for people to kind of digest that for a second. Let me just give you the lowlights of it, all right? 68% of those who name themselves as Christians can justify relations between an unmarried adults as long as they're in a committed relationship. That's the top one, all right? 68% of Christians, so if you add up the, uh, never, the, the other things besides the never in that category, then that equals 68%, if I did my math right. And that's how many Christians 
can justify that being the case, right? All right, these are basic, these are basic teachings from Scripture that sex is only in marriage between a man and a woman, yet Christians can do this, all right? The bottom one, I mean, this, this blows my mind. Like, somebody who names themselves as a Christian, you only have 54% of Christians on the right who say, absolutely, that's wrong, right? That's absolutely wrong in every situation, every occasion. You have 54% who some way, somehow, can say that that's okay, all right? You can justify it, or 46%, whatever the math is. You, you see it there. It's close, all right? That's crazy numbers, right? And it just shows you the truth that many people who name themselves as Christians can live in this manner. And maybe you're sitting right here in this room, right? Maybe you're sitting here. And maybe, you know, you're, as a true believer that you failed, we've all failed, right? We all fail. But if you, what, what he's getting at, embracing this attitude, this lifestyle, basically, I'm going to live the way I want to live, right? And maybe in the moment, like now, maybe in this moment, you're like, oh, that's wrong. But in the moment, in the, the moment of temptation, you constantly choose your happiness in that moment. And your happy choice shows what you really value, which is, your needs, your desires, your values over God's morals and his character. And, and so Christians live this way, and some Christians promote this, and there's churches who celebrate this. And there's no way scripturally that you can do this. There's no way. And so verse 4, back in verse 4, if you look back, if you're following along in your Bible, he says, you pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So in the Bible, sensuality can be defined as devotion to gratify bodily appetites, free indulgence in our carnal pleasures. And so that's the idea of sensuality. It's like, God, I'm going to do what I want to do with my body. It's my body. I can do with it what I want to do. And again, may not be the words that you say, but it's the fruit of your actions that say that, right? The fruit of your actions. And so the person allows their senses to dictate their decisions. And it's a devotion to their gratification. And instead of walking, as Brian mentioned, by the Spirit, we walk contrary. We walk by the desires of the flesh. Paul warns against it. He says, walk by the Spirit, then you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. If we're walking by the Spirit, we will not indulge in these activities. And so you may be asking, if you're newer to church or you haven't been around for a while, you may be asking this question, why do Christians care so much about this issue? Like, why is, like, holiness and our sexuality and uh, purity, why is that such a, a big deal for Christians? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. It's a great question. Throughout the Bible, we constantly see the language of sexuality used to explain God's covenant with his people. In the Old Testament, Israel was referred to as being unfaithful to the covenant in terms of adultery. And, and then in the New Testament, Paul mentions the mysterious link between marital intimacy and Christ's love for his church. And so there's a correlation here. There's, there's a connection here with what is God desires for his people and this, this illustration of our sexual union between a man and a woman. And so the fundamental reason why we believe that sex belongs only in the permanent bond of male-female marriage 
is because marriage is a metaphor of Jesus' love for his church. It's a metaphor of Jesus' love for his people. Old Testament, covenant, New Testament, covenant. It's a metaphor. It shows the glory of God. That's why when I sit down with someone and do marriage mentoring, one of the first things I say is, your marriage is a picture to others of the gospel. And right now, it's not such a good picture probably, right? Because you wouldn't be here because you're fighting, arguing, not getting along. What does that say? So not necessarily totally the sexual aspect of it that points to the covenant relationship with God. It's the whole relationship, but it's most definitely the purity that we possess within the bond of a husband and a wife. And so our marriages point people to Jesus. Our marriage covenant shows something, that marriage and intimacy are deeply sacred acts. And God's design for them is not to limit our pleasure. It is for our individual good and the good of humanity. As Tim Keller said, the flourishing of humanity. And I love that language. That's what sex is for. And that's why God gave it to us, along with procreation. He gave it to us to exemplify him and enjoy him. And we enjoy the things that he's given to us within the parameters that he gave. And so when the world says, why are Christians so hung up on this stuff? Why are they so Puritan-like? Why are they? You remember, and maybe you can't articulate this very well, but you should study and to know these things because our culture is attempting in a way that is never done in the history of this country, attempting to undermine God's plan and justify it and call themselves Christian with holding on to these sinful attitudes and actions. So those who attempt to undermine God's holiness and his wise and good plan, these people, Scripture says, they're only going to increase as we get closer to Jesus. All right? Don't think this is going away. As Jesus' return gets closer, it's only going to get worse. How do I know that? Second Timothy 3, 1 through 5. But understand this, that in the last days, that's the, the church age, the day we're in, there will come times of difficulty where people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parent, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, and without self-control, brutally, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Here it is, having an appearance of godliness, they name themselves as Christians, but denying the power. Avoid these people. He says, avoid these people. These people are to be avoided. And so we're going to engage with our culture We have to understand that this is a reality that we live with today. And these scoffers are going to work themselves more and more into the church because it's ultimately Satan's strategy, and he wants to to corrupt us from the inside out. And And it's working, as you saw from the statistics, from those who are wolves in sheep's clothing within our body. Don't be surprised by that. If you do sermon follow along questions in your K group, There'll be some questions about why God permits that to happen within our, in our church. And there's some good that comes out of the fact that there's people that come in and promote this stuff because it keeps us alert and aware and in the word and not getting lazy. And then Jude makes a turn in verse 20. Now he turns and he speaks to the believer and he gives them this wisdom, this practical wisdom they need to live in this world and to be what Christ wants us to be. So he says, but you, beloved, beloved, He says, building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ 
that leads to eternal life. All right, it's really interesting if you look at this, these two verses here, because the grammar in the original language is noteworthy, is there's only one command here. There's only one imperative, and that's keep yourself in the love of God. And the other three clauses or phrases in verse 20 and 21, building, praying, and waiting, these are Jude's instructions on how believers can keep themselves in the love of God. So follow this. So, so the command is keep yourself in the love of God. This is not our love for God, but his love to us. He says, keep ourselves in God's love for us. So what in the world does that mean? What in the world could he be talking about here, all right? If you look in this book, let's, let's set it up and look through what Judas said so far and what's he gonna say in our text next week. He is not questioning our security of our salvation. In fact, back in verse one, take your Bible, look back to verse one. This may be on the screen also. He says, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. And so those whose faith is in Jesus, you're kept for Jesus Christ. He refers to them as beloved. This is love by God. We talked a lot about that. And then in verse 20, he refers to them again as beloved. They're loved by God. These are God's people. These are God's children. And then verse 24, the verse that we just sang in the last song on this, that was on the screen, says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So Jude begins this letter with the believer's security, and he ends his letter with the believer's security. And so he's not questioning our security and telling us that we must do something in order to stay saved, to keep our salvation. No, he's saying, keep focused on God's love. Don't forget who you are and what he has done for you in the cross. Focus yourself on the love of God. Don't get distracted by those who are advocating, following your sensual desires. Don't get distracted by your own sensual desires and, your, and, and wanting to indulge the flesh. He says, don't give in to that. Stay focused on God's love. And the story that I immediately thought of when I read this was the story of the prodigal son, a very familiar story for many people who attend church. The story of the prodigal son, the son goes to his dad and he says, dad, I want my share of the inheritance. I need it now because I'm done here. He takes his money in a few days. He runs off into a distant land. He starts spending his money on prostitutes and living just a, a, a debaucherous lifestyle. And what happens? Over time, famine hits, bad times come. He's in the pig pen, Jewish boy. He's feeding pigs and eating the husk that the pigs were given to eat. He's desperate, and he says, I'm going to go back to dad. I'm going to go back to my dad, and I'm going to say to him, I'm not worthy. Take me in as one of your servants. What happens? He goes, and when he's a long way off, the father spots him. He sees him. And he runs to meet his son. He embraces his son. And his son starts in on his little speech that he'd rehearsed probably in his mind over and over again on the journey back. Dad, I'm not worthy to be your son. He's like, what are you talking about? He's like, not only you're my son, put the robe on him. Let's, let's have a feast. Let's have a party. Because he once was lost, but he's found. What, I mean, he, he's, he's my son. I'm celebrating him. And so the idea of keeping yourself in God's love is the fact that even as believers, we can move outside that umbrella of protection. We can run from God's love. We can not allow our hearts to be full of God's love. We can forget the cross. We can forget what he's done 
on our behalf for us, and we can stray away. It's what William MacDonald said when he writes, the love of God can be, can be compared to sunshine. The sun is always shining, but when something comes between us and the sun, we are no longer in the sunshine. And so the, stay under the sunshine of God's love. Avoid the darkness and the shadows. He's saying, allow God's love just to permeate your heart. Don't allow yourself just to be religious and even have values and morals. Because if you're not rooted in Christ, then you're going to easily find yourself giving in to the lies of the culture and being like, oh, yeah, it's, it's just sex. It, it's not really that big a deal. You know, it's not my job to monitor what people do. And, you know, and all these things that we come up with in our mind to justify what other people are, the way they're living, even in the church, then it begins to slip in. And pretty soon we find ourselves like a great deal of Christians who just can look the other way and say, it's okay. It's okay. God doesn't really mean what he said. And it's the lie from the beginning. Did God really say? So he says, keep yourself in the love of God. And it simply means that we're going to find safe shelter in God's love. And don't follow the self-indulgent ways of these false teachers. There's no safety there. There's nothing good can be there. Follow Jesus. Keep your eyes on his love. It's what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3. Just follow along when verses 17 through 19. It says, Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide and how high and how long and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to fully understand. That's an understanding of the gospel. That's comprehending the gospel to the point where you know, I can't make it through this day and do anything for Christ if I don't understand that love and I don't try to grasp, even though it's impossible, to fully grasp it, how much God loves me and what he did for me in Christ. And that God is for me and he's not against me because of Jesus. And so we respond to God's love with, with joyful obedience to his commands. It's not drudgery. It's, it's delight to know that God's commands are for our good, for our safety. It's the fortress. It's the fortress of God's love for us. But what happens when we begin to move out of that sunshine or move out of that fortress and we start to just live our own way? Many of you could stand up right here and testify in your own life experiences what happens when you do that. Many of you could just start naming off, man, I did that, I did this, you know, it was terrible, it was awful. But yet, we're all guilty at times of running back to the same things, even though we know, like, that's not smart. In the moment, we think that's the happier choice. We think that's the more fulfilling choice. We get on the other side of it, and we're like, man, what was I thinking, right? What was I thinking? And so the, the goal is not to, to be in church more. The goal isn't to talk the Christian talk more. The, the talk isn't even to memorize your Bible more. Although that can be definitely connected to this, the goal is to know the love of Christ more and more. What he did for you in the gospel. And I say it all the time, rehearse the gospel 
In your prayer times, rehearse the gospel. In your quiet times, rehearse the gospel. Look at the gospel. Never let the gospel get old. Because it's in the gospel that we not only find why Jesus loved us, but we see that he still continues to love us. And if he can give, God can give Jesus for our salvation, want to give you everything else you need for life and godliness, Paul says? The, the obstacles and the challenges for your day, the temptations and struggles for your day, are all the, the, the safety are found in the safety and security of God's love in us through Christ. And so we just lean into that powerfully every single day because we know that we need it. And so the imperative, keep yourself in God's love. But then look what he says, this, this practical wisdom, these tools that he gives us to do this. He says, first, building yourself up in your most holy faith. If you recall back in the earlier verses, he referred to the faith, all right, the faith. And what was he talking about? He was talking about the faith that had been passed down from the apostles to them. He's talking about the Bible, the truth that we have today, and this has been passed down. And he says for us to continue to grow and build up each, ourselves in the faith. And what is in, in, true in the original language here, this is important that we don't miss this. This is not an individual thing, all right? This is not an individual like me and God, all right? We, we got this. This is definitely a collective communal thing that, that is implied in this verse that it's a building up collectively of the body, of the church. So it is not that the individual follower of Jesus is to build himself or herself up, but that the followers of Jesus individually or together are to build up the community of Jesus. And how timely is that encouragement today? With K-groups starting last Wednesday and K-groups this today, continue today, and there's options for you because this is not just you and Jesus this is a community. This is a body, and you're part of that body, and you have gifts that God has given you to build others up, and you need what other people have to offer to build you up. We need to be in community with one another. You can't do this as a lone ranger. You won't. You'll fail. You need others to continue to build you up in the faith. So building yourself up, you're building up in the most holy faith what God has given us. Second, you're praying in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit doesn't refer to the words that we're saying. It is how we're praying. It's, it's, it's the same thing as just we're walking in the Spirit. It's what Paul talked about. He even traveled in the Spirit. He says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. He talked about prophesying in the Spirit. He talked about joy being produced in the Spirit. He talked about speech being controlled by the Spirit. So it's allowing your prayers to be shaped and sculpted by the Spirit. All right, let's be real here for a second, all right? Totally real for a second, all right? Think about your times with God. I hope you have them. Think about your prayer life. Most of the time, it's either an afterthought or it's something that you're distracted in or you're hurrying through. You know how I know that? Because it's guilt, I'm guilty of it as well. That prayer is so difficult and it's hard. And there's so many things that can distract us and take us away. And oftentimes when we do pray, we pray prayers that are just formulas, things we've said all our lives, very little thought goes behind them. Praying in the Spirit is a dependence upon the Spirit that I need you to lead me and guide me. I need to know your will, God, today. It's what Jesus did when Jesus prayed, prayed not my will. It's, it's, it's God, it's your will. It's not my agenda, it's your agenda, God. I want to follow what you want today. 
And so think about that. Think if you started your day out that way in prayer. Think about it in community. Instead of just praying just superficial prayers that we prayed, Holy Spirit, lead us, guide us in your truth. Help us to take your word and just apply it in our lives and live it out in our relationships. And we begin to connect the dots to different people and different situations in our relationships and our lives. And so we begin to pray in the Spirit and let the Spirit guide us. That's what praying in the Spirit is about. And then the third one, he says, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. This idea of waiting has this idea of watching. Being alert, keeping our eyes ready for Jesus. We know that he's returning. We know that he's coming. We know that what we have is true. And unlike the scoffers that Peter mentioned in 2 Peter, who they're saying, no, things just keep going as they always have been. Like nothing, Jesus not coming back. That's the scoffers say that. And all of us have a little bit of scoffer within us, right? Is Jesus really coming back? Is this really going to happen? And we don't know whether it's in our lifetime or not, but I think we, think we pray and we do what Paul did. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain. Like, Jesus, I'm going to see you one day. You're going to return. I'm going to die. But I'm going to live for you as long as I'm alive. And I know that afterwards I will be with you. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I remind myself of that truth that I've heard a billion times in my life, that Jesus is coming back, that Jesus is going to return, or I'm going to be taken to Jesus when I die. And so I live watchful of that reality that's true. So building yourself up in community, building yourself up, praying in the Spirit, what, not my will today, your will be done. I'm looking for you. I'm anticipating you, Jesus. I know you're going to return. I know you're in control of all this. And I, I, I just want you to live through me today. And so our head application, all these things point to this. Keep yourself in the love of God. Maybe you'll think just the, the story of the prodigal son. Don't stray off. Don't wander off. Don't get out there. Stay in God's love. Rehearse his love. And then the, the heart aspect, I really want you to ask yourself, Am I living God's wisdom, or do my actions say that I'm just dumb, right? I'm, I, mean, how many, I mean, seriously, how many of us are just dumb that we know the truth and we walk out of here and we have good intentions to live it, but it never happens because we're not committed to it, plain and simple. If we were committed to it, we would follow through and live that way. And so there's wisdom that says, I'm going to take what's been given, I'm going to put it and apply it to my life, I'm going to come up with rhythms and um, systems in my life to make sure I make the main thing the main thing. Or you can just be dumb and think this is going to happen accidental and this wisdom is just going to ooze out of your life because you're, just, you're a Christian, right? It's not going to happen. You need to have a plan to be with God, to be with him in prayer, to be intentional about your prayer life, to be intentional about the gospel and rehearsing the gospel, thinking about the gospel. You need to be intentional about watching for Jesus and reminding yourself. So Jude says, remind, remember, thank on these things. Remember, you got the tools. You've got them. There's no use running around looking for something new or something novel or the latest greatest in order to live the Christian life. You don't need to go and find the latest Christian self-help book. Jesus has given us everything we need for life and godliness through himself, through Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage you, the hands application, I would encourage you to pick one of these three and dust it off this week. Build, put yourself in community, be real in community, invest in community, pray, really slow down and listen 
and, and, and really be present in that moment in prayer and be watchful. Trust Jesus for your future. Trust Jesus. He's in control. He's got this. He's coming back. He's coming. This is happening. This is true. You need to remind yourself of it. So I hope you'll take one of those three and really then think about it. I'm just going to keep under the umbrella of God's love. I'm just going to, to bask in his love and let my heart be full with his love because he loves me. He has a plan. And he knows what's going on in this confused culture. I don't always know what's going on, but I sure don't want to be one of the statistics that says, oh, yeah, it's okay. Just whatever. Just love covers everything, right? Just as long as we love people, it's okay. It says avoid people like that. Scoffers. Stay away from them. Don't let them influence you. You be an influencer in the culture for Jesus. Let's do that this week. Father God, we thank you for this book of Jude, this little book that packs such a powerful punch. God, there's so much here that just is totally true of our day and age. Because humanity, deep down, we haven't changed at all. Apart from you, God, we indulge, we throw all morality to the wind, God, and we just run after our own pleasure and thinking this is going to bring us some kind of happiness and joy. And ultimately, we know anytime we run from you and your design, your good uh, design for us, God, it's going to end in a bad spot. And God, for our culture, for us individually, for us corporately as a, as a, as a church community, God, help us to build our lives upon Jesus Christ, not on moral values, not on traditions, but build our lives upon Christ and him crucified. In Jesus' name we pray.